Hello everyone, this is Stavros Yanuka and welcome back for another episode of Wise Words. In our last episode, we talked to Dr. Eduardo Padron, who's uh, trying to change perceptions of higher education in the U.S. by championing community colleges. Um, in this episode, we're going to talk to another person who's making waves in the education system, this time by trying to take on uh, one of the more established disciplines, mathematics. Conrad Wolfram has been a prominent proponent of education reform in mathematics, aiming to rebuild curriculums around what he calls uh, computational thinking. Conrad is a technologist, he's a mathematician, a physicist, and a businessman, uh, and he founded computerbasedmath.org uh, as a way of fundamentally rethinking and rebuilding mainstream maths education around computational thinking and coding. And we're going to get into what that is uh, and how it's different um, in, uh, in the podcast. Uh, together with uh, his brother Stephen, uh, Conrad is uh, the European co-founder and CEO of the Wolfram Group of Companies. The, uh, the group operates at the intersection of computation, data, and knowledge. Uh, and it's driving innovation across data science, modeling, and maths through technology, and providing solutions, uh, including Wolfram One and uh, Mathematica, as well as the Wolfram Alpha Knowledge Engine, which powers the knowledge answers for uh, Apple's uh, Siri. Please join me in this episode to understand computational thinking and why that may be the future of mathematics. Conrad Wolfram, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Conrad, you're, uh, I suppose, best known for advocating uh, for a radical redesign of the way we teach mathematics. Uh, and in particular, you're, you've been advocating for uh, the intensive use of, of computers uh, in the teaching of mathematics. Can, can you give us a summary of what your main thesis is there? Sure. So I really want computers, not so much for the teaching, though that's important, but because the subject in the outside world changed. And my thesis is we need to rebuild the maths curriculum, assuming computers are there to do the calculating. Yeah. So you know, if you look at maths curricula around the world, uh, they are predicated on the idea that the human is the primary calculating machine. And that was what was required until, you know, 50 years ago. There was basically no other option to that. Uh, now in the outside world, everything has fundamentally changed. The difficult step in doing the problem solving using maths is not typically the calculating, and that's been done fantastically well by our mechanization of computers. It is the setting up of the problem, the determining of the result, the decision as to what the problem really is you're trying to solve, and so forth. So what I'm advocating is a fundamental shift of the core technical subject, let's call it maths, although let's come back to what it should be called later, on the basis that computers typically do the calculating for us, and we should only teach the humans to do the calculating, where they really need still to be able to do it by hand. 
and we should leave computers to do it for all the rest of the time and we should therefore make the subject far more contextual, far more conceptually empowered for most people and far more widespread across much of the population. Okay. I mean, that, that, that sounds uh, very compelling. Before we get into the, the details, though, do you think there's, is there any utility to continuing to teach uh, some form of, of, you know, of, of mental mathematics or, or, or mathematics by hand? I, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking in terms of, you know, for example, in the same way that, you know, we, we don't need to, you know, to walk or, or run anywhere anymore because you know we have faster and more efficient means of communication but we do it because it, it, it's good for us in the form of exercise but but i think is good it, i think there's a i think you've brought up some interesting issues yet i mean good for you is a good reason <laughs> there's yeah. nothing i mean and in fact you do need to walk and run places you know i mean you you know you could you live a life without doing it well, well you could but but you degenerate physically quite badly and there'll be all sorts of other yes. issues that we can't so it is important yeah. And I think the thing we've got to do with maths is be very clear uh, about the exact reasons why we might do things and then execute those reasons. So if you take mental maths, I think there are practical... I mean, I, I basically say about maths, there are two reasons why you might want to do it by hand still. Yeah. Reason one is it's actually useful today still. Reason two... And so so just to take that reason one, uh, I think a lot of mental sort of estimation in particular is pretty useful by hand i mean yeah. i could go set it up on my computer but it's not convenient it's good to be able to have a conversation with you about you know a graph i've looked at or about a rough calculation or to do a rough thing in my head to work out whether i think it makes sense and yeah. to have that as a sort of basic mindset that i'm able to do uh, you know i don't think it's the pinnacle of primary maths education but i do think it's kind of useful and there are other cases like that the, yeah. the second main reason why you might want to learn some mathematics by hand, uh, or the, uh, not the mathematics, but the calculating step of the mathematics, yeah. is so that um, it's because somehow that conceptually empowers you to understand the workings of the mathematics better, and yeah. therefore allows you to go further. Now, that second one we've got to be very, very careful about. I think in the curricula around the world, there are a lot of claims where that's the case, where in practical terms particularly in the way that maths is often taught, they really aren't the case. People are learning procedures they don't really understand, and that's not really empowering them. And yes. the procedures are nowadays not very useful. So I mean, to give some examples of that, I mean, I think, for example, if you have an equation which says x plus 2 equals 4, it isn't unuseful by hand to get the idea that if you subtract 2 from both sides, that yeah. that could help you solve the equation. That'll give you the answer. Yeah. That'll give you the answer. And so I don't think yeah. you should go and practice a thousand of these things. I think you should get the idea of that and then do much harder equations on your computer. Now, on the other hand, you know, I didn't understand that's what I was doing for solving equations for a long time. I thought that I knew the procedure that if you move two from the left to the right of the equation yeah. and changed its sign, then somehow it would magically work. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing we have to avoid. That's not really helping anyone. And there are a lot of processes like that and things like long division. I mean, long division yeah. is a is a formal long division is a process that, you know, most people don't really use anymore now. They do it on a calculator, and, and it doesn't yeah. really. You can claim lots of empowerment from it, but really, it doesn't seem like the best use of time to grind people through that. No, I, I understand, and I think I think what you're arguing for is a difference between understanding the logic behind a function, a calculation, versus the actual mechanics of it, where. 
arguably it might be less important to, uh, uh, to, to, to be able to, to work the machine, so to speak, uh, manually. Well, here's the thing I think is very important to distinguish, actually in all subjects, but, but particularly maths right now. The difference between what I call the essence of the subject and the mechanics of the moment. So, Say more? Well, so if you take the essence of mathematics, what do I think that is? I think mathematics, in essence, is a system of problem-solving. A very successful system of problem solving that's driven our economies, our societies forward particularly well in the last few decades because uh, part of that system has mechanization of the calculating and therefore you can do much more with it than you could do before. So the and, and I think it's true in other subjects. You know, what's the essence of photography? Well, I would say it's representing the world, let's say in still images, if you're interested in still photography, mm-hmm. to to give you, you know, to give an interesting view of your perspective of the world. I mean, that might be one, other people might argue with that essence of the subject. Now, let, let's compare that with the mechanics of the moment. Let's start with photography. You know, at some point, the mechanics of the moment was loading films into cameras. And there was a lot of learning you needed to do about how the camera operated in order to make it work so that you could do the essence of the subject. In maths for, you know, well, millennia, certainly centuries, the essence, that the only way you could do maths, use maths, was by doing the calculating by hand. So it's completely logical that that's what you would do much of the time. That's what you had to learn. Otherwise, you'd get stuck and you couldn't use it. Just like if you couldn't load a film into a camera, you couldn't do any photography. And what happens often in education, I think, is that, you know, in the real world, the mechanics change. And that has happened beyond imagination with mathematics, with computers. But education has a lag to catch up and then gets confused about what it is that, that it's supposed to be achieving in a particular subject. And I often joke that if photography was a mainstream school subject, in the way that maths currently is, that the first lesson would still be on how you load a film into a camera. Yeah, and, and then and then yeah, and more advanced. How do you you know how do you uh, uh, work a dark room and right and, exactly and, and develop film? Yeah. And so that's why I distinguish. And so yeah. that's what I call the mechanics of the moment. Now, now on the other hand, to be clear, every moment has certain mechanics to how you how you operate the subject. To put it that way, so. You know, right now in photography with a normal digital camera, there are still certain things you need to know about how to operate the camera, what an aperture means, and so forth, if you want to do it in a reasonably good way. Yeah. Um, same with maths. There are ways to know about how you get a computer to do what you want it to do, how you use the system as it is, which are not intrinsic. They may change. The way we operate a computer to do maths in 20 years' time may be completely different to how we do it today. But you still need to learn today what you do today to get that done. And... So, but so in education, we need to keep our focus on the essence of the subject and always make sure we're manifesting that as best we can. Yeah. But we also need to teach people the mechanics of that moment so they can keep to that. But knowing that when they come out of education or in a decade's time, that mechanics may have changed and they still need to understand that was only the mechanics of that particular moment. Now they need to learn how to learn the new mechanics when that comes available. Okay. No, that, that again. I, I'm, uh, I'm I'm convinced, and I've I've heard you, uh, I've heard your TED talk, and and you've also I think spoken at Wise uh, about about this topic, and and you've sort of defined mathematics using uh, uh, four stages. So you talked about number one, it's about posing the right question. 
Number two, it's about translating a real-world problem uh, into a math formulation. Step three is the is the computation or the or the calculation, and step four is the math formulation into real uh, into a real-world uh, uh, implication, uh, and then of course figuring out how to verify that that implication. So maybe that's a fifth step. Um, maybe we can take each of those steps and, and, and have you talk our listeners through how you would, uh, you know, conceptualize a, you know, a, a math problem, say for, sure. for upper primary. Sure. I mean, so if you take the first step of defining the question, I mean, one example I often give when I'm giving talks is, um, I say, uh, imagine we sealed the room I'm in. Yeah. And I talked for too long. <laughs> Uh, you know, how long could we all survive? Okay. <laughs> right, so, so somewhat gruesome. <laughs> somewhat gruesome. Well, hopefully not, because hopefully we don't execute that uh, that particular <laughs> test. Um, now, of course, the first thing is to define the question. That's step one. So what exactly is the question I'm asking? How am I going to turn it into a question that I can actually calculate the answer to? Yeah. So, for example, you know, one of the richnesses of this is, you know, does the room have air conditioning? Are we switching and sealing the air conditioning off does the yeah. room leak air you know yeah. is it oxygen content we care about what's the minimum oxygen level that people can survive off i mean there are a lot, there's a lot of richness that you might get to in terms of what yeah. it is you're trying to do and by the way that's a step that is totally missed out for the most part of normal mathematics yes. education because the problems are so simple that people don't have that step it's already they're given the next step or the step after right yeah. so let's say we've then decided on the parameters for that Step two is probably the most challenging step in the modern world. Take that question and turn it into this language of mathematics, an abstract language to represent that question. Now, now why do we bother to do this? Yeah. We do it because the great thing, the great idea in a sense of abstract mathematics is by turning lots of apparently totally disparate problems into a sort of symbolic representation, a formulation that's that's this sort of abstract language, we can then have a much more uh, standardized way to work out what work out what the question, what the answer to the question is, uh, yeah. which is the step three, the calculating. So, but in order to do that, we've got to set it up correctly, and you know we can just talk about it in English or, or in Arabic or, or whatever, <laughs> and we can yeah. get a certain distance by doing that. But the trouble is, we then think of every problem differently, and we don't get as far. So, so that second step, which is often called abstraction, involves a interesting mapping, uh, typically now by still by a human, sometimes by a computer, but usually by a human, to say, okay, here's my problem. Now I've got a lot of tools in my toolkit. I've got equations. I've got nowadays machine learning. I've yeah. got various sorts of data analytics, a whole huge swathe of possible tools. What tool or set of tools am I going to use in order to formulate this problem so that I can turn it into and calculate the answer most effectively? So that's where we end up turning it into traditionally what's been mathematical notation. Now, in the modern world, and we'll come back to this perhaps, actually the way to write down that abstraction is with code, computer code. Mm. What you really want to do in that step is you want to write a program to represent your idea. So that's the second step. Now, once you've got your, your question written down in this abstract way, the third step is you say, okay, now, given I've got the question, let's say for simple case it might be an equation, yeah. 
given that I've got my equation set up, how do I get the answer? That's for simplicity's sake. Let's say the equation is a simple, single equation in x, and we want to know what is x equal to. And that's the beauty, this magic third step, which is you take the question, you turn it into the answer by a whole collection of manipulations, uh, you know, processes that have been developed over hundreds of years uh, yeah. to do that effectively. Now, and, and, and the fourth step is where you say, okay, I got, let's say, x equals 3. What does 3 mean? Yeah. Uh, is it three hours? Is that if I so go back to the original question and and you know does three hours make any sense? If I got the answer as minus two, it's probably the wrong question. I probably got it wrong, but it might even be wrong if it's three. How am I going to verify that? And I, you know whether you call it step five or step four B or whatever, then you need to figure out what to do. And sometimes you'll say, well, I, I got the answer, uh, and um, um, uh, you know I got the answer, uh, so to speak. Uh, and I maybe it's not a good enough quality of answer, so I need to go back through the four steps again, redefine the question, re-execute all these steps. Now, of course, it's step three, the co- computation, that I'm really arguing about, because yeah. what I'm saying for step three is um, use the computer to do step three, almost yes. always. And, and that has big ramifications as you go back through the other steps, because it means you can abstract to many, many more things for step two your toolkit's much, much larger. It means yeah. you can throw much harder problems into the whole system. It means that your complexity of what you do in step one is potentially much harder because you can take much harder problems. You don't have to make them much simpler calculations because the computer's dealing with them. So it has huge ramifications all the way through the whole process and to what questions and things you can tackle. If, I mean, if, if we just go back to step two for a moment, doesn't isn't the implication there, though, that you, uh, I mean, anyone wanting to uh, adopt this approach needs to develop sort of a much more robust understanding of the concepts. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, in, and in some ways that makes it actually a bit, makes the subject potentially more difficult. Yes, it's a funny mix because it, it's what we found, which is so interesting, is it does make it conceptually harder, in my view. But it's also interesting how many of our students today are completely switched off by the sort of abstract first nature of today's maths education, which switches them off before they might even conceptually be really engaged in the subject. So it's very odd because we find there are many people uh, where many students where, you know, apparently they're no good at today's maths. But actually, when you start with a real problem, with all the richness of the real problem, and you start to go through the process I've described, they get much, they're much better at it than they were before. So it's sort of like conceptually harder, but because it's tethered to the real world, they can yeah. drive through that, that conceptual difficulty much, much better. But it's a, it is a different tool set. Uh, I mean, well, it's a different tool set in terms of what they're abstracting to, but it's also mentally a different, a different subject to a large extent in terms of what they need and what capabilities they really need to achieve. Uh, to yeah. do that. Um, and you see, one of the things I believe strongly is, I mean, there are people who do our current maths today, perhaps I'm to some extent one of them, who were able to just like the fact that it's abstract from the get-go. Yeah. You know, it, they love the abstraction of it, from it, but that's a very tiny fraction of the population. And most people need to start from some reality of their lives 
and work from that. And I think subjects which have embraced that mostly have done much better. Now, that doesn't mean you don't get to the abstract mm-hmm. or the conceptual yeah. end of it. A lot of governments believe somehow that yeah. means you're dumbing it down. But as we've just discussed, that doesn't mean that at all. It probably means the opposite of that, but it's the, the start point is very important. And, and I think um, yeah. you know, that's what happens in the real world. You're starting from some case you're trying to work out. That's what you're using it for. Actually, one, one could argue that, that, in fact, sort of traditional mathematics doesn't, doesn't even really tackle the abstraction very well. I mean, all it does is, is it, it says to you, if you do, you know, if you take the following steps, you know, you, you will get, you know, you, you will get the answer that, that will, you know, get, get you past the exam. Exactly. You, don't, you don't necessarily understand what those steps are and why, why they're important. So, so there are two levels of this, right, which are quite interesting. The first thing, I mean, you're right on, on all counts. The first step is if you ask educationalists sometimes, you know, sort of, I mean, you know, take solving a quadratic equation. Most of us have had to learn how to do that in school. Yeah. And I love asking ministers around the world in particular, when was the last time you solved a quadratic equation? And the answer is typically never. Yeah. I mean, or to help their children or something, which is rather a circular argument. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is, if you ask people who've thought about this a lot, they often say, well, you know, somehow, um, because of the way it's taught, uh, let's say in this case with completing the square, which is a particular technique for working out what you do, you're actually getting algebraic manipulation. You're teaching people a lot of things that are not just about solving that. I would have some sympathy with that, perhaps, but there are two flaws in my view in that argument. First is, you point out, when most people learn quadratic equations so they can do them in their assessments, they're not learning that. They're learning a process they don't understand, really. And it's just turning a handle. And they're almost, in many cases, rote learning it. And it's rote learning something they're really never going to use either. So that comes me on to the second point, which is we have so many things that we desperately need people to know that are real tools today that they're actually going to have to use. Why on earth don't we start from the idea that we're going to use the real, so to speak, tools they're going to apply in real life as the thing to teach them the concepts? Why bother to teach them the concepts, in a sense, on things that they're not going to use? And they're typically not learning the concepts either because, because as we've discussed, they're just learning the procedure. So there's, I think, a gap here between, so to speak, the best thing to teach anyway, even if you want to get across a concept, even if it's the right concept. And secondly, the what's happening on the ground for most people versus what perhaps the people who were thinking the curricula up actually considered should be happening. And there's a pretty big gap there. But I think there's a third point as well. At the moment, we have pretty much in math, the only tools you're allowed to abstract to in step two are things that you learnt are in sense what you learnt how to construct usually more or less from first principles so you know that means the tool set's very limited because unless you know how to calculate this by hand you're basically not allowed to use it now two examples you know and and of course this is if you compare with DIY uh, it's a bit like saying you're only allowed to use a hammer and you're only allowed to use a screwdriver once you've learned how to make a hammer and make a screwdriver well, the result of that is you have very few tools to play with. 
Yeah. And most problems then end up looking like nails if you're using your hammer. So you pretty much use your hammer for everything. Now, you see this exactly yeah. happen in mathematics. If you take normal distributions for fitting to data, thing that many people learn, sometimes the only thing they learn about how to fit to data. We have people around the world who always try and fit normal distributions to whatever data they're given. Yeah. This is a hugely detrimental exercise because, for example, in the financial crisis, uh, there was a, um, a book called Black Swan, for example, which explained yeah. how people used the wrong, the wrong distributions. I think part of that was because they'd learned normal distributions. And, you know, I know in our mathematical software, there are 150 distributions. So why would you always use normal distributions? And why use distributions at all when you can just calculate directly from the data? So there's many wrong lay layers of thinking which, which relate to that step two. Yeah. So, so in, a, in a sense, again, by, by outsourcing the computation bit to the computer, you, you can also free up uh, more capacity in, in, in the learner and the student to, to absorb a, a broader toolkit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and let's, let's focus a little bit, uh, Conrad, now on, on what have been the challenges that you're you know, that you faced in, in trying to actually get this adopted uh, more widely? Well, the general problem around the world is we have a very locked ecosystem of education. And I've written about this a few times on my blog post in, in conradwolfram.com. Um, one of the problems is that in the end, the linchpin of the world's education is our assessment. And the assessment locks down what the subject is. And then we obviously have teachers who are trying to deliver students to be able to take the assessments, who themselves obviously have learned a particular subject, and it's locked in. Then we have governments who are trying to improve things, but of course uh, it's very difficult to change that whole ecosystem. And then it's even perhaps more difficult because now, and I don't necessarily criticize, but we have things like PISA and TIMS who compare different countries around the world in an attempt to improve their performance, and, and I think they've done some very good things in that regard, but I think what they've mainly achieved is improving the, the pedagogical process for getting a particular subject taught. When yeah. you think about the subject itself, they're actually locking it down further, because yeah. what they're doing is they're saying, you know, if you're a minister of country X and you're a minister of country Y, you are now have less freedom to innovate your subject, because when you get tested in PISA, for example, um, you're... Uh, you know, you're tested against what it was deemed to be was the right subject around the world. And frankly, I know PISA are a, a bit frustrated by this too. I've, I've talked to them and they say, well, sometimes the countries, we, we're trying to push forward with more problem solving and the countries don't, don't want to do that because they're not ready to do that. So there's this kind of bizarre stuck ecosystem around the world. And so for us, it's very difficult to try and get the subject injected newly because it's like, which bit of the ecosystem do you perturb first? Yeah. Now, another part of the issue is how evidence works in education. So I, I wrote another post actually about innovation-led evidence versus evidence-led innovation. Mm -hmm. In education, we often are heard saying, and I understand how this happens, but we're often heard saying, until we have the evidence you know, a new approach works, we can't test it because, you know, it'll somehow, you know, suppose yeah. it messes up, it'll mess up that, that child's education. So, but unfortunately, if you can't test 
yeah. a new approach, then you can never have a new approach. You can make very small incremental steps. You know, if you look at how medical companies, you know, how pharmaceutical companies work, it typically works the other way around. I mean, in the end, you've got to guess what might yeah. be a new, better approach. You've got to innovate first. You've then got to do a lot of tests sort of to see, you know, initially before you get yeah. to the student to see whether it works. <clears throat> and then you've got to go back and you've got to try it and test it and do iterations to figure out whether it worked or didn't work or how you improve it. Yeah. Um, so again, injecting that we have found fairly difficult. So it's what we're always looking for is innovative countries, innovative jurisdictions who have some control over their assessments and where they can uh, really try and uh, test a whole approach, for maybe for a fairly limited part of the curriculum, so that we can see the proof of how, of how this works. And, and you know, it's obviously very slow trying to get that adopted, you know, through governments uh, and, you know, as, as ministers change and so forth. But I think the, the, the discussion about that has definitely moved a great deal forward in the few years, you know, I've been working on this problem. And people are now discussing this at all levels in all countries, I think, as, a, as, a, as an issue that the subject has a problem. Yeah, and and have you have you had any sort of success getting getting this adopted? Uh, perhaps not at a system level, but at a school level. Is is there anyone out there that's piloting or uh, this this new approach to uh, to the subject? Sure. Well, we started in Estonia, and that was top down. See, Estonia is a, a relatively small country, but a highly innovative yeah. one. And we rebuilt their probability and statistics curriculum for middle and secondary school yeah. from scratch. And um, they are, I mean, I think we're, I forget, the second or third round of piloting there. where that, So that is moving forward, albeit, you know, a bit slower than I'd like it to be. But I think there's been some good initial data out of that. And again, you know, efforts are now being turned to how do they fix the assessment? How do you change the assessment to be able to, to handle it? So that one's the furthest ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are various other countries that we are talking to, and we have we're close to having projects. We did an early project with Ireland, for example, and there's a great deal of interest at all levels there um, on moving different things forward. And there, there are other countries I unfortunately can't um, can't talk about right yet. Um, I no, think that's, we, that's fine. We, yeah. We've also got some groups, school groups, particularly in the US, who are, so to speak, consider that they're to some extent outside the traditional exam system that they're not really trying to prepare. They're rather innovative school groupings and homeschoolings and things where they've kind of decided that the whole system doesn't quite work and are doing some things. And so, of course, there we don't have the problem. And so a lot of we've got a lot of tests going with those on a sort of more school system basis, so to speak, to try and, yeah. uh, to try and uh, get something to work. Now, one big question in all of this is what the subject name is. Yes. And... Uh, there's a big issue here because, you know, one way of looking at this is we're trying to reform maths education. The other way of looking at this is that there is a new subject that should start up that somehow ends up supplanting maths in likelihood. Yeah. And those are, I mean, the the end goal, as I see it, is it's a a fairly simple thing to state, which is we need to have a core technical subject in schools, which is fit for purpose. And that core tech subject is this computer-based subject I've discussed, 
which is a driver for all other subjects across the curriculum. Just like you learn to yeah. write English, you learn to write Arabic, there's a core subject for learning English and Arabic. Uh, the uh, Just like that's the case, um, yeah. so there's a core subject for learning what I might best describe as computational thinking. Yeah. Which you need to apply sort of horizontally across the curriculum. Now, you know, maths supposedly is that subject, but isn't, for the reason we've discussed, making the grade right now. Yeah. You know, does one say one wants to turn that into computer-based maths, or does one say, actually, we need to start a computational thinking subject, core subject, which delivers that? And that's largely, in each case, a sort of a political slash, you know, process question, more than what the out sort of the output outcome should be. Yeah. Um, but But I do think there's a major problem and I'm sad to say this because, you know, I'm a supporter of what maths is trying to do. And, I, I, you know, I'm sure some mathematicians will be upset that I'm saying this. But I do think there's a problem with the word maths or mathematics or math if you're in America. You know, I think yeah. that that word has some toxicity attached to it at this point, which is independent, you know, independent of all the practicalities, what we talked about, mm-hmm. what needs to be done. I think yeah. that very word has a, has a, has a bad brand. Yeah. For some purposes. And and that brand by itself may be causing problems in furthering this cause, um, which is a great pity. Yeah. I mean what what's what's interesting to me here is that, that you know, I, I I've sort of been recently I've recently become interested in in uh, you know in, in the idea of of you know what, what constitutes sort of core knowledge uh, that, that everyone uh, around the world ought to sort of aspire uh, to, to at least possess a, a sort of good enough understanding of. Um, and, and I think it was, it was David Deutsch at, uh, oh, yes. some, some years ago that, uh, that, that wrote a book called The Fabric of, of Reality, and he listed computation as one of the four sort of core pieces of knowledge uh, that uh, if one sort of possessed an understanding of could pretty much uh, use to interpret uh, almost anything that's that's sort of going on in uh, in, in in our universe um, and and that sort of got got me to sort of investigate this a little bit further uh, and then I came across a, a, a talk that your your brother I believe gave around the sort of power of, of, of computational thinking and computation itself uh, to to become a, a, a much uh, to, to open up new horizons across all all subjects. So, do you want, do you want to just comment a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, the way I view this is, you know, computation in a sense, and computational thinking to go along with it. In a sense, computation is this process by which you problem solve and computational thinking is the human end of how you operate that process is the way I think about this and I agree with David Deutsch a person who is actually only a few miles from where I'm speaking at the moment Uh, uh, and um, uh, he lives in Oxford I think Uh, is um, you know that it is a core process by which people can understand the world and some people, of course, today are very much better educated in that than other people, and that's something that we desperately need to improve for across our economies, but also individually for people's own well-being, uh, both, so to speak, for survival and also f- 
for real value add that they can put in both in work and outside. Um, so yeah, I mean, I view computation as sort of the great enabler for different ways to look at the world. That's why I quite like the term computational thinking, because I think it helps you to think of it as a process that you could apply to virtually any subject or any walk, any problem you're trying to solve in life. So I think we discussed before sometime history. Yeah. You know, there's a normal way you learn about thinking about history. Now, one way to think about history is, you know, can you work things out uh, computationally that have happened in the past? So one thing I know we did a blog post about was, uh, uh, you know, if you look at U.S. presidential inaugural speeches, what if you analyze the words in the speech, mm-hmm. what's the, you know, what's the modal word? What's the word that comes up most in the speech? And does that tell you anything about what then happened in their terms, in terms of what they, what they did? Um, so that's, that's quite yeah, an very interesting, interesting way yeah. to analyze it. And my point about that is it's not the way a normal traditional historian would think about analyzing problem, but it's an extra way. It's not that we should get rid of the traditional mm-hmm. way of thinking about history, but we should add this as an additional slice of how we think. Again, about our politics, about you know ways we, we think about how we're governed, ways about how I structure a company. So to give you an example, you know, a common problem in a company is do you structure it to handle... Uh, different countries uh, and within each of those countries you know sales and marketing and so forth mm-hmm. or do you structure it the other way around do you structure it you know sales across the world and then divide it down by country marketing across the world I mean, it's very simplistic yeah. but what that is if you think about it is what in mathematical terms is called a basis set and yeah. how you construct different ways to look at geometry based on different coordinate systems it's actually very related to that now again because i have a mathematical background I can think of structuring my company in that sort of way. If I don't, of course I can think about it in other ways, but I don't have that extra richness. And I think what's exciting and what's really okay. happened, and perhaps what my brother was also saying was, um, you know, maths computation had a very limited scope of what it could be applied to before computers. Because yeah. it was this constraint we talked about earlier, there was this narrow pipe of calculation that if you couldn't do it yourself... Um, then basically couldn't use it. So maths was really limited to bits of physics, accounting, other pieces that could be well, you know, where, where you could make the computation simple and cheap enough to do by hand that it was that it was doable. Um, the computer has turned that on its head to enable these huge range of new areas. Of course, at the moment, data science is particularly the sort of hot area. Yeah. Uh, where we can now do and use totally different techniques because the computation is so cheap. And so that's fundamentally changed which subjects you can apply to. So it's realistic now to go and model the human body with a computer because a very complex system. It's realistic to now analyze you know, people's health in very many sophisticated ways, which we couldn't have imagined doing before because we couldn't handle the computation. So this system of problem-solving the computation, which was so specialized to a small number of areas has now massively zoomed out to be something that we can apply almost to any area of life in some form and get some helpful uh, sort of thinking process. Now, here's the really two really weird things yeah. about this. First thing, in education, we are saying, to a large extent with maths, that we want people to understand how to do maths in context. But then, because we remove computers, we are largely removing all the context. The fact yeah. of the matter is, there was no 
there wasn't much biology you could do with maths before computers because it was all too complicated and uh, you know had too many data points in it. So you couldn't really get very far mostly with that. You couldn't do any big data science. There are many bits of finance you couldn't do. So all of those contexts rely on mechanized computation, rely on computers. And so in education, when we say, right, we're going to put a problem in context, we end up with an incredibly simplistic problem because you can't use maths for doing anything but like snooker balls and, you know, dice and things like this because it didn't work for it before computers. So we're actually stripping the context out of the uh, mathematics um, when we do education if we don't do it with a computer. So that's why it's so vital to get computers in there. Here's the second thing, a very British thing, this, that, uh, that occurred. As people already know, Britain voted nearly a couple of years ago to exit the European Union, so-called Brexit. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting discourses I noticed before that, just as we were coming up to the vote, was a lot of the Brits were saying, you politicians, you just, just tell us what will happen, let's say, to house prices if we vote to stay in, if we vote to go out. Like, just tell us what the computation will be. And they were saying, you know, you politicians aren't doing your job in not giving us the facts. But what had gone wrong there was that people didn't understand. Sometimes you can't compute the result because the error bars are too big. It's too complicated. Yes. You need to know the limit of where you can apply the system. But they're so poorly educated in computational thinking that they yeah. don't know that. And it's turned so much on its head. You know, 100 years ago, no, nobody would think you could calculate those things. But now they assume you can calculate everything. And yeah. so they're applying calculations and getting <clears throat> misled by experts because they don't really understand what's justifiable and what isn't. So there are yeah. many layers of what people need to learn, which, which they're not really getting to, and, and why this computation is such a powerful element, potentially, in, in our societies. Yeah, or, or, I mean, just to sort of build on the, uh, on, on the Brexit example, it, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's a poor understanding even of things like, you know, probabilities and, 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 and how different scenarios might play out depending on, on, on what assumptions you, you, you choose to base your uh, calculations on. Absolutely. And, and it's even worse than that because it's the – you see, I think it's a real challenge to governments and to how we're governed because what it does is it means that you have a problem with experts. You know – there's sort of been a period where people believed any expert, you know, on various subjects, and a bunch of the experts turned out to be wrong, and then people lost confidence. I mean, certainly in, in the British yeah. and American context, they lost they lost confidence in the experts totally because they, and now they're at a stage sometimes where you know, however logical and reasonable the expert is, they're not going to listen to them, and that's very dangerous because it it means that um, if they don't, so to speak, um, uh, you know, listen to them, they can't distinguish between people talking complete nonsense who are extreme and people who are trying to be reasonable and and talk to things uh um and uh you know that means that um it's it's sort of like it 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 makes it it makes it very hard to distinguish sort of news from fake news and and means that it's it's really quite difficult for our populace. Where, see, because the problem is a lot of the political discussion in places become much more computational in nature. Yes. So, therefore, if we have a population who are ill-equipped to understand that computational thinking, 
we're in some trouble in terms of arguments that are and aren't made to them. That's that's, that's absolutely right. And and actually, that that's it's interesting that you brought up um, fake news because that's that's something that uh, that's also been been preoccupying us uh, here at here at Wise in terms of how you know how does the education system respond to. Uh, you know, to to the preponderance, if you will, of, of of social media now, as as a source of of news and, and information, um, and, and to a certain extent, excuse me, to a certain extent, I mean, part of it is is developing, uh, I, I suppose, critical thinking, but but uh, I mean, the other part of that is also equipping people with the tools uh, to to be able to make you know assess the uh, 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 the veracity of, of what they're being they're being fed, and, and I suppose computational thinking is arguably one of those fundamental skills that, that could allow you to make that that distinction. And and it sort of goes further than critical thinking. I I've often thought yeah. about critical thinking, and, and obviously the trouble with critical thinking uh, um, is that it's it's often more of an aspiration. It turns out as more of an aspiration than it is a sort of process. I mean, obviously, we all want people to be thinking critically and to be able to assess yeah. different things. Um, but what does it really mean? What's the process? By which yeah. Now, the, the great thing about computation and computational thinking is there's a fantastic process, as we talked about earlier. There's a four-step process that's been incredibly successful. And often what I think is people who can apply, apply that process very well, even if they're not explicitly applying it, you know, to get out a quantitative result, it in itself is, so to speak, a very good guide to critical thinking, or one form of it anyway. Yeah. And I totally agree with you that it's a core, so to speak, embedded understanding that people need in order to be skeptical of what they're told, but not over-skeptical. Well, that, that's the thing. I think most people interpret critical thinking as as well as, as in a sense stopping at the critical part yes <laughs> <laughs> yes that's well, certainly, so, so, yeah, certainly so in the british context that's very true you know, um, you know doubt everything be skeptical of everything but then they don't sort of move to the next step which is the thinking part say well okay well if if that's not the answer then what might the answer be uh and then and how do i how do i get to it absolutely and it's <laughs> The problem is, in fact, one of the things we did is to figure out what do we think the core outcomes are from learning this this core subject that I'm talking about, whether you call it maths or computational thinking. What are the set of outcomes that we really need people to have from that? Part of which is confidence to tackle new problems, uh, you know, different forms of skepticism, so to speak, but measured skepticism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, critical, you know, how can you evaluate different things, you know? And, and there are a lot of tools in the box for that. Like, you know, how do you know whether something is correlated or caused? Yep. That's a critical thing that often is used, misused, uh, in order to mislead people. But partly because it's hard. Another one is risk. How should, you know, how should you evaluate risk of different sorts? Um, and what is riskier? And, you know, I mean, you know, this has come up a lot with things like crops. You know, if I do genetically yeah. modified crops, can I figure out whether that's good or bad? 
you know, uh, there's a certain risk. What are the risks? You know, and, and people need, yeah. need to understand basic pieces of logic. Like you can't prove something is safe. Well, when I hear politicians yes. say, you know, I can prove this is safe, I, I wince. On the other hand, the public shouldn't be asking for that because it's not possible. You can prove something's unsafe, but you can't prove yeah. it's safe. So you've got to do the best you can. And then there's a question of how do you evaluate that? And those are very computational questions. And I agree with you. I think one of the things that maths at the moment manages to achieve is stripping people of a lot of confidence often. Yeah. Because as well as the actuality of whether you can do maths or not do maths in quotes, it's a thing, it's a sort of like um, a test of your intelligence, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do it, somehow, you know, you've got some some disability. You yeah. know, and, and people go away thinking <clears throat> that often. And that, to me, not only damages their confidence to ask questions in maths itself, but it, it damages their confidence generally to question other things. So I think it is a crucial strand yeah. of, of achieving that sort of confidence that you need in order to have a you know a functioning good functioning society and everything and and deal with the sort yeah. of fake news and, and again if you look at some of the social media groups you know to me the first question one would ask in a sort of business-like way is if you're getting a service for free what's yeah. the quid pro quo yeah what are you giving up what are you giving up what are you doing yeah. how is that going to work what might be the result of that yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, the, it's, it's sort of become the, there's a sort of popular meme now going around that if, you know, if, if you're getting a product or service for free, it means that you're, you're actually the product. Yeah. Or words, words to that effect. But it's been a bit um, late for people to, to, you know, understand that. Absolutely. And, and, and absolutely. that may be quite acceptable for you, but you need to yeah. know what it is. Uh, and, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, the, I mean, I, I think what, what, I mean, the other interesting thing that, that this conversation, uh, Conrad, brings up is, and I want to get, get your thoughts uh, on this, and, and it, the statement that you made around, well, you, you know, you can't prove that something is, uh, is safe. You can't prove a concept like uh, uh, absolute safety. Uh, I mean, to, to a certain extent, how, how much of, of a sort of basic understanding of key philosophical concepts do you think is necessary in order for people to sort of engage in computational thinking. Because some of these things have sort of been, you know, obviously debated by, by philosophers for, for millennia. And, and, but again, we, we, we don't teach philosophy anymore unless you go to, uh, you know, unless you want to study it at, uh, at university. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Actually, my mother was a philosophy tutor at Oxford, so I did uh, earlier in my life. Used to well, I used to ignore much of what she said about it, um, but uh, I did have these sorts of discussions. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, where does philosophy intersect with computational thinking? I mean, I think that's a much more interesting question now than it was many years ago, because I think yeah. that computers allow you to get to these some aspects of more complex philosophical issues than you could before when they were much sim- you know when the calculations were much simpler. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think philosophy is important in some sense, so people can think about the options they have. And, and again, I mean, if you take medical issues, 
Yeah. There is much more philosophy you need to consider because you can keep people alive in all sorts of circumstances where you couldn't before and where there are starting to be you know, much bigger ethical questions about is it reasonable to keep them alive, for example. That depends on yes. the sort of religious and yeah. philosophical views. You know, Do you want somebody on a ventilator for 10 years? Again, there are risk issues there. You know, It's possible they might suddenly wake up. People mm. have suddenly woken up 10 years later. Uh but the question is, is that likely reasonable, etc., cetera, et cetera. So there are many questions that come up, which are new dilemmas, which I think actually, because of our technological prowess, require more philosophical intervention, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, again, to sort of go, go back to your framework, your, your four-part uh, framework, I would say, I mean, I think sort of philosophy comes in, becomes important uh, at that step one, I mean, yeah. in terms of guiding you to sort of asking the right questions. Um, and then number four in, you know, how do you, you know, how do you interpret the, you know, the results? What do you do with, with the results? So if you, you know, take a, a risk for, for example, you know, if you get, uh, you know, a range of, uh, of, of probabilities of, you know, of an event happening, uh, say a particularly catastrophic event, happening how what do you then do with that information yeah i totally agree with you um and it's a mixture of experience and philosophy so to speak and and i think it's i mean people talk about practice in maths i I prefer the term experience what you want to do in many walks of life is you want to have what education can do potentially is accelerate your experience and allow yeah. you to have experiences earlier so that you know how to handle them when they come up in, in, in your normal life, so to speak. That's one way of looking at some of what it can do. And so we need the rich experience so that people can actually get to the philosophical problematic questions of what question are you defining? What do you want to know the answer to? And some of those are fairly practical. Some of those, as you correctly say, turn into a fairly philosophical question. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, a good... <laughs> You know, um, I, I was I was noticing this reason recently how productivity is measured in countries. I'm I'm certainly no economist, but um, uh, you know it's measured yeah. as I understand it by the amount of work delivered by. And this may be very rough for the economists listening, but the amount yeah. of uh, the amount of work you know GDP delivered by those who were working. Yes. Now, I've always noticed between France and Britain, Britain is said to be much less productivity than France. Now, on the yes. other hand, Britain has a much higher employment rate. So it is probably true that, you know, so again, there's a question there philosophically. What is it you're trying to achieve? Would you prefer more people to be employed who you can say are less efficient individually? Yeah. Or would you prefer fewer people to employ who each are doing higher level jobs that are more efficient? You know, that, that's a question. And I think that yeah. just looking at the numbers doesn't tell you the answer to the question because that's a very human, philosophical, practical question, almost a psychological and social question as much as it is a computation question. Yeah. No, absolutely. And even to, to I mean, one of the, um, uh, I suppose, one of the things that I'm, I'm again, getting more and more interested in is, is is, uh, is the whole issue of, uh, around artificial issues, rather around artificial intelligence, and how do we how do we program artificial intelligence to uh, to, to make the right choices? And, and just to sort of give a uh, maybe a, a current example, uh, when it comes to autonomous vehicles, for example, 
what would you know what would happen uh, if an autonomous vehicle has to make a choice between uh, continuing down its path and, and potentially hurting uh, a group of people or you know diverting and potentially hurting the passengers yep. in, in the vehicle how do you begin to you know to, to program um, that autonomous vehicle to, uh, to to make a choice that you know people are comfortable with Absolutely. And as you say, in fact, even to thinking about that, when I, if I was charged with thinking about that, and I, I hope I'm not, this is a pretty complicated problem. Yeah. The four-step computational thinking process we talked about is pretty good start to that. It is, yeah. And, you know, having, sort of having in your mind what that's way to think about, well, we're really trying to define to start with what the exact issue is we're trying to achieve, you know, which is a decision point. Yeah. about what the car does when it can't satisfy all its conditions of you know keeping everyone alive more or less yes uh, yeah. it's and, the classic trolley problem in in ethics yeah yeah and that's right yes and and so it's a very broad rich mix of different subjects as we currently divide them i mean this is a whole question also about how you divide or don't divide subjects you know <laughs> One of the bizarre things in the recent world is I think we were at a state maybe 20 or 30 years ago where people wanted to specialize more and more and more. And they needed yes. to because they needed to know, you know, the, the, the details of this type of dentistry or something because that's they were the super specialist on that. I think we're now in an age, coming into an age, where actually being able to do a sort of interdisciplinary view of the world is where the most value is and yeah. and it's a very complicated process because we're trying to much earlier i talked about how you know there's the mechanics of the moment versus so to speak the essence of the subject and the trouble is now you've got an awful lot of machines to play with so the possibilities for what you can do and you're also very zoomed out from the actual mechanics of the issue so it's kind of like that needs higher level conceptual thinking and it needs knowledge of all the possible ways you can do things. And um, and that's very challenging. And that, as you say, means understanding bits of philosophy, but also understanding how to manage people who know more about that detail, so to speak. Yeah. Well, not even a detail, that whole area in order that you can pull them into this. And I think one of the big challenges which we need to educate people for, and I've given talks, you know, um, fixing education for the ai age one of the big challenges yeah. i think for us is how do you set people up to be able to manage machines in a good way and part of that is computational thinking because you need to understand what it is you would do with the machine how you'd instruct the machine so to speak how you'd work with the machine in the way that yeah. you have to understand people's psychology to work with people and so i think that's a big challenge and how do you manage people whose main job is to, so to speak, interact with those machines? How do you know enough about what to do or not do? Um, and it's a big challenge we've had throughout our our work at Wolfram Research, building computation software, Mathematica and Wolfram 1 and Wolfram Alpha yeah. and these other things. Um, you know, how much do you automate? How much do you tell people? How do you get people understanding all the range of yeah. possibilities they can do? Um, and of course, the person I would like to cite who was tremendously good at 
zooming up and down the spectrum of generalism to specificity was Steve Jobs. Yeah. You know, at one level, he could look into the intricacies of the design of an iPhone and pull his team to fix it, make it better, make some detail much better. Another, he could see a huge picture of how smartphones were going to change the world and how you would implement a workflow to make that really work. Um, and that's a very unusual skill. Uh, but I mean, there are a lot of people who I think could do a lot better with it by learning this right core subject. Yeah, and 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 I mean, it's. I, I wanted to actually talk to you a little bit about um, Wolfram Alpha because it it is a very powerful uh, tool. Um, in some ways, it's it's um, uh, sort of it's an interesting. I don't want to use the word the, the term antidote, but it's it's an interesting uh, parallel to say Wikipedia. Can, can you say a little bit about about it and how how you guys? Uh, conceptualized it and and what what your aspirations are for it sure i mean alpha is interesting because what it did i mean most people didn't weren't thinking about computation as something you could apply as in such a consumer way to knowledge and our big thing was to say you know what computation i mean in a sense what does wolfram as a company do we apply computation everywhere that's what our aim has been you know, take this fantastic process we've been talking about of computation and apply it as widely and deeply and broadly as you can. And so around 2008, 2009, we were saying, well, actually, the technologies and the computational power and everything are there to be able to apply this to asking knowledge questions directly. So what Wolfram Alpha does, unlike search engines, is it, when you type something into it, it tries to understand your question, it tries to turn it into maths, computation or symbolic representation for want of a better description from the other end it then we have data that we've curated so that it can directly compute from that data and yeah. then when you ask the question it's putting those two together it's actually computing a result based on pulling the data and computing it might be a brand new result that's never been asked of it before it's computing a brand new result and it's then pushing that out through our notebooks um, and turning those into um, usually HTML if you're looking at it on the website. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's how it's... So, so when you do a query, it's computing a fresh yeah. result. So we're applying computation in an area it hasn't been applied before. And um, uh, the... Um, Does it incorporate machine machine learning at all? Well, it, it, it doesn't do machine learning automatically at the moment. Well, we do a lot of machine learning and other techniques to get the data in shape that it can work from, and we will be incorporating more types of, of self-learning yeah. into it. Um, so in a sense, it, and by the way, this brings up an interesting point, that machine learning is not the same thing as AI. Yes. Many people think of Wolfram Alpha as AI correctly. Yeah. Machine learning is one mechanism by which you can achieve AI. Exactly. But not the only yeah. one, and we shouldn't get again mechanics mm. of the moment versus the the essence yeah. of the subject, so to speak. So, um, so that that's interesting because I think one one of the one of the issues that I think is um, is is interesting, and I think is is preoccupying the the AI community, at least based on my limited understanding, is is the issue of transparency in in how the AI generates its uh, its outcome. Uh, its result, and and oftentimes, again, from my limited understanding, machine learning is a little bit of a black box sometimes, oh, and so you're not you're, you're not exactly sure how and why 
um, you know, the, the it, it's well, it's it's largely a black computing. box. Computing, it's yeah. largely a black box. Yeah. I mean, so it, but on the other hand, you see, this is one of the pro- this is very interesting because one of the problems of how do you work with machinery in the modern world? Yeah. You say it's a black box, and what you and the problem is you can't really learn, you can't really find out what it's doing. And there are many areas of life, and particularly in computation, where that's become the case. You can't do the thing manually to check it. You can't really understand each check and step it's doing. Yeah. This is a facet of modern life. Generally, I don't really understand how my computer's working. I mean, as in, I know it's got chips in. I know more details than many people, perhaps, about all the different layers in it. But in the end, I couldn't really tell you every step of how my computer's working. And yet I'm using it. It's a black box. Yeah. Uh, same thing if you're flying an airplane. Now, how does that get handled? Um, I think the best way to handle it is through experience and through ways to handle, you know, so to speak, how you verify results. So yeah. again, if you're flying a modern airliner and something goes wrong, there is a limit to how much you can understand exactly. You know, it might be a minus sign was put wrong in the code. Yeah, you, you can't figure that out. The question is, how do you verify what it's doing? How do you use the other systems to know whether you know to get a get a yeah. get a fix on what's happening? Uh, and again, part of that, by the way, just to point out, is you know pilots have checklists, and the yeah. you know the, the optimal pilot does a mixture of going running through their checklist, including in an emergency. And using intelligence in real time to figure out what to do around that yeah. checklist, and that's exactly what I'm suggesting needs to happen with with maths. You see, uh, and and so in a sense, what Wolfram Alpha is doing is it's it's running this computational process to work with knowledge, and I don't yeah. think it's the only process that you can run to get knowledge. And in some cases, it's not the best, but for the things that it does of computing new results, it's really, really good compared to other systems. And and I know, for example, we've often been talked about, you know, alongside Watson, for example, which is another AI type of system for figuring yeah. out knowledge. And I think what I often say about this is, you know, it, it's it, there are cases where you can try and do things with Watson where you couldn't attempt them with Wolfram Alpha. But I think on the other hand, in the cases where you do things with Wolfram Alpha, it really is a process that's understood and works. And I think it's very difficult to be able to map that out fully in some of these machine learning-led processes like Watson. And and I think the results show we're often talking to many people who uh, kind of were winning contracts where where other AI systems may not have done. No, and I think, look, my comment around the black box wasn't to suggest that all of us you know, or even the, the majority of us ought to to sort of uh, uh, have an intricate understanding of of, of, of the workings of uh, of our machines. Clearly, that's that's uh, neither practical nor nor desirable. Uh, I, I think that the the difference, or at least again, as, as I understand it, is that uh, in in some cases with with AI, we're in a situation where nobody understands yeah. how you know. Um, how how certain results are generated, and that that to me is is a dangerous. Yeah, I um, totally agree. And uh, the way position to, to be in. Yeah. The, the way to mitigate that danger is to have other techniques to verify those results. Yeah. Have other ways to think about it, and that is a crucial role of education. Yeah. And one of the challenges, though, in general with education is how we handle educating people when they're not dealing with the end issue, but they're dealing with the automation layers on top of that. Yeah, and that is that is complicated in all walks of life. Um, now, in some places, they're very separated. How you drive a car, 
I mean, assuming it's not a self-driving car yet, but uh, today's yeah. cars, um, is pretty separated from how you make a car or how you even maintain a car. Now, that wasn't always true. When there were no layers of automation between them, it was kind of like, you know, you, the driver, were you, the mechanic, were potentially, at the very beginning, even you, the builder. But again, the mass subject now is driving. And the question is, how do we tell people what to do when their car does something weird? If they, you know, if if the car is somehow disconnected more and more and more, and this is true with self-driving cars, from, so to speak, the mechanics of what's happening on the ground. And, and then how do we analyze, you know, when things do go wrong, as they inevitably will? Yeah. You know, how do we, you know, is there enough transparency in the system to allow us to analyze what went wrong and and suggest fixes or improvements yeah, that's right. to the system? And those, those are big challenges. And as you know, with building software, even a software system like, like Mathematica, um, it is very challenging doing what we call QA or quality assurance. And it's... You know, it's not straightforward to be able to ask all the right questions to make sure there's no bug. Uh, and you inevitably do get bugs. But then the question is, how do you track the bugs and how do you get better by learning? And some of that is just process. Yeah. Uh, Conrad, this this has been a, uh, a thoroughly enjoyable uh, conversation and discussion. I'm, I'm conscious that we've, we've gone over, uh, we're almost at an hour and 15 uh, minutes, I believe, of uh, of, of conversation. Um, is, is there any anything you want to share with our listeners in terms of, of you know what what are the uh, some of the big things that you're working on now, uh, and how you hope to take your your work forward? So, I mean, we're building a curriculum by building problem sets that we think will engage students in this new computational thinking slash computer-based maths uh, subject. And we really want to find support for doing this in this way around the world. Uh, and there are various ways that people can help us with this. I mean, obviously, if if these are, uh, you know, government people listening, people who have access to different foundations and funds and things, there are tremendous opportunities here to leapfrog other jurisdictions by implementing the kinds of things I'm talking about um, because you can really produce a completely different computationally thinking trained set of citizens and so what we've been working on in a sense is thinking about all aspects of what that ecosystem needs to be and building them a lot of people you know in education one of the things that frustrates me is a lot of people talk a lot but they don't produce that much and my belief is being somebody who's used to building things I like to actually build the things to implement. You know, maybe they're not perfect the first time round, and we need to iterate. And so our focus has been on building modules that manifest a mixture of the curriculum we're trying to map out and, if you like, electronic textbooks and teacher aids all wrapped in one. And I think we're unique in having, having managed to do that, but based on another uniqueness, which I believe nobody else in the world is really redoing the maths curriculum on that basis uh, at all and certainly not with that delivery so what I'd really like to see is anybody who listens to this if they can see roots uh, related to what they're doing related to what their 
their school groups that they're connected with are doing, related to what their governments are doing, and particularly related to what, if they're involved in industry or in universities, these are the things that will really, these are the, so to speak, endpoints that will really drag a, a change through. We talked earlier about issues about making a change. In the end, the population, industry, and universities need to be much pushier about what they want to see for their engineering courses and their engineers and just their everyday managers. And the more people who can voice that uh, and can sort of help us to manifest both the vision and, and in a sense, the pitch for that, um, I think the better and quicker that those jurisdictions can move forward. So I, I urge everyone to go to computerbasedmath.org and let us know what they think or, or send a uh, uh, you know, and uh, or, or let me know, and um, you know, take a look at uh, some of the other things we're doing, and and of course we're very interested in any suggestions people have. Um, you know, one of the places I know that's doing uh, rapid change at the moment in education is Egypt, and um, in the region, and that is uh, an exciting prospect there for some of the new ways in which these ideas might be might be attempted we're very early stage there but i think there are some exciting changes and uh, it'd be great to see uh, other countries and particularly other countries in the region where i think there's so much potential that remains locked up compared to um uh you know and, but on the other hand there's so much opportunity for leapfrogging yeah well conrad wolfram thank you very much for your time and for your wise words Thank you very much indeed, and good to talk to you again. If you're enjoying the Wise Words podcast and want to find out more about our guests and their work, as well as discover what else we do at Wise, you can visit us at www.wise-qatar.org backslash wise-words. And if you want to continue the discussion, compliment or critique us, you can find us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets or at wise underscore CEO, hashtag wise pod. We would also appreciate reviews on iTunes because it helps other people find us.